Good afternoon, Facebook Live fans and friends and loved ones. It is great to be with you on this Sunday afternoon, May the 2nd, 2021. What's the significance of May the 2nd, Bill? You act like that means something. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. It is Bill's birthday today. Yes, and as I shared with the church this morning at West Irwin, uh, the great Paul McCartney was thinking of me today years and years and years and, and years years ago. I mean, a long time ago, I believe, even before, um, possibly before I was born. He wrote this song when he was 14 years old, I believe. Uh, but it's, will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Boom, boom. So there you have it. That's how old Bill is. And it's that way today as of, I think, something like 3.15 or something this morning. Um, but it's been a wonderful birthday. Lots of folks have sent wonderful messages. Uh, people have sent me food, which is great. Uh, wonderful uh, remembrances that people have. And it's always a blessing, always uh, humbling and uh, very encouraging. You know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and other forms of social media really get raked over the coals and deservedly so about some things. Uh, but one of the great things about them are things like today uh, for my birthday. And I hear from so many people and have all this week uh, because my birthday really started on Wednesday when my dear friend and sister Helen Boyd brought me a birthday cake. And it just happened to end up on my Facebook page, but uh, they were at our Benevolent Center worship service this morning, being the great servants that they are. And because her heart is so warm and gentle and uh, uh, wants to be such a blessing, uh, she brought me a birthday cake on Wednesday, knowing that she wouldn't see me on Sunday. Uh, so I just, you know, felt that that was a sign from the Lord that I'm supposed to celebrate all this week. And so that's what I've been doing. And I've got more pictures to share. Lots of fun. Lots of great things. My sister Alice and her husband Ernest drove up and spent uh, uh, some time with us this weekend. Had a wonderful dinner with them last night and uh, lunch today. And they were at church, uh, our service at West Irwin Church of Christ this morning. Um, and just, you know, just very, very blessed. Uh, it is always amazing to me that I can read and scroll through the, the Facebook notes and happy birthdays. And, and I see every aspect of our lives uh, represented from the time I was born and a child and um, a high schooler in San Antonio, uh, first became a Christian and then our time at Oklahoma Christian College in uh, the uh, late 70s. Uh, friends from there, those days, the beginning of ministry in San Antonio and in every stop along the way, our time in San Antonio and then in Arlington, Texas for 20 years with uh, the wonderful Woodland West Church of Christ and the Center for Christian Education, uh, the school where I served, and then on to North Carolina and our great South Fork Church of Christ, wonderful family there that I love so deeply and so many dear, dear friends there. And so many remembrances from our friends there and now here in Tyler for the last uh, six years almost in July, being able to uh, appreciate all of the great things that God is doing and has done and will do uh, with this wonderful church family. We had a great worship service this morning. The preacher preached a little long, but uh, it seemed that he had something to say. And so I guess that's a good thing. But it was um, it was a great uh, a great blessing to be a part of all of these different aspects of our lives together. Joyce and I will be married 44 years on May the 7th. 
uh, had known each other since seventh grade, long before we got married, dated for uh, a couple or three years. And so it's um, it's just an incredible, incredible, humbling thing uh, to know how very deeply you're loved. So thank you to all. My dear friend and sister Barbara Kasky is looking at us and watching with us and studying with us this afternoon. Love hanging out with her. And Pat Slade, great to see you on here as well. Hope you're doing uh, well. Well, it's... Um, it, we're at the, uh, the, the difficult moments and hours in Jesus' life as we turn uh, to the last part of Mark 14 and the first part of Mark uh, 15. It's very interesting the way God uses people to spread his love and to spread his message. And that's certainly true with the Gospel of Mark and with its author, uh, the Christian man Mark him self. Um, just like Simon Peter, just like the Apostle Paul, just like Bill, just like all of us, not perfect, not sinless, uh, but one who um, who answered the call. And uh, I will say more about Mark at the very end of the message today. Uh, this is that section where Jesus is uh, betrayed by one of his closest friends and followers. He is disowned by everyone else including Peter. Peter uh, does it in such an incredible way after being warned, and yet it's all of the apostles, all of his disciples, his followers that flee, and Jesus is left alone and faces his trial and ultimately is uh, convicted and uh, condemned to death. So we'll read through this. I think when you get to this part of the Gospels, the, um, the arrest, the betrayal, the the trials, the crucifixion, the resurrection. One of the, the great ways to study this is to simply read it. A lot of, as a preacher, you know, I love to kind of roll up the sleeves and delve right in but uh, and, and get into those and start looking at each individual word and what it might mean and uh, each sentence. And I think those are all important things, but you can't lose the forest for the trees. The message is significant because it is the message of uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so we're getting those events uh, started today. So a few others signing in. My dear brother from North Carolina, Tom Messick. Um, love and appreciate you, my friend. Thanks for joining in. And, um, uh, and then Larry and Lynn Murphy. Larry led a wonderful prayer to close our service this morning and appreciate you and your family so very much. So beginning with Mark chapter 14, verse 43, we read about Jesus being betrayed. Uh, John 14, verse 43, just as he was speaking there in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, talking to his disciples, having warned them after meeting with them at the last supper, uh, telling them you're all going to fall away, all of them saying absolutely not. Peter saying, even if I have to die with you, uh, I will never deny you, never betray you. And all the others said the same. And all the while, uh, Judas Iscariot has it in his heart to betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. So just as he was speaking, Jesus having prayed, not my will, but yours be done over and over and over again in the garden while his disciples, even after such stern warnings, uh, were sleeping. Um, just as that was finishing up, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And I'm not sure why, because there was no army for Jesus. There was no power and might in his followers. 
nevertheless, they were ready uh, for everything, loaded for bear, as the saying goes. Verse 44, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We understand from other accounts that that was Simon Peter. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus comments to them, um, and when he, when he says that, it has such a reaction. Uh, but then, verse 50, everyone deserted him and fled. Uh, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And we'll come back to those last two verses at the end of our study today. Uh, Jesus is betrayed by one of his own, Judas Iscariot. And it's amazing to me that when they're in that upper room, before Judas leaves, uh, Jesus washes his feet and shares the meal together. And then ultimately, Judas gets up and leaves and all the disciples are thinking, well, he's, he's going to get something. He's going to buy something for the feast or give to the poor or something. But Judas instead is going to sell out. Uh, his master. We read about all of these great incredible things in uh, in the other gospels as well. And in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, one of the amazing things is to read through that section and to read those names of those who still follow Jesus. Matthew tells us in Matthew 27 that uh, Judas, after this was done, took his own life. Um, Peter, as we know, will also deny Jesus, also come face to face in a literal way, as Luke records, across the garden where Jesus is being held and, um, and goes out and cries, cries and cries his heart out in repentance. Uh, Judas Iscariot, unfortunately, does not uh, have that grief, that remorse that leads to repentance, that leads to being able to uh, do the things that that God calls us to do in order to be able to um, to repent of our sins and, and Judas instead hangs himself. The amazing thing about all this is that Jesus is betrayed by one of his own apostles. One of those that is as closest to him than anybody else. One of those that should be one of the ones to defend him, should be one of those to die with him, even claiming that uh, um, that he was a follower of Jesus. Uh, still, that wasn't the case. So we see, first of all, Jesus betrayed by one of his own apostles, but not just Judas is the one at fault here. He is disowned by them all, and he is denied by Simon Peter. Mark 14 continues on, uh, beginning at verse uh, 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law come together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, of course. Many testified, um, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree because they were false witnesses. 
Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. Verse 57, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Uh, yet even then their testimony did not agree <laughs> because Jesus would have answered that charge how? Well, you're right, I did say that. And I was talking about a different kind of temple, just as he will tell Pilate here in just a little bit as John records, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, the temple he talked about, of course, was the temple of his body. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Paul would later talk about that time when Jesus himself made the good confession. And I think he's talking about this exact moment, this exact moment when in his own trial against his own people, uh, the Jews and the Jewish leaders are called upon to tell the truth. And he does. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is the great I am. Uh, but it was more than they could handle because with his words, then one of two things is true. He is either um, committing blasphemy or he is telling the truth and actually is the son of God and worthy of worship. We know that it is the latter, but the Jewish leaders could not wrap their heads around such a concept. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? He asked the other members of the Jewish ruling council. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Two of the Sanhedrin, at least two that we know of, did not agree with their decision. And those two ended up being the ones who actually took the body of Jesus down from the cross and buried it in the tomb that one of them owned nearby. Uh, that, of course, being Joseph of Arimathea and the man Nicodemus that Jesus talked with three times in the book of John. First, when he calls him out and says, you must be born again. Then when Nicodemus himself raises concerns at a Jewish council meeting, ruling council meeting. And then finally at the cross when he and Joseph uh, take down the body of Christ. Verse 66, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. When Jesus had spoken those words, as you know, Peter called down oaths also, and he said, no way, there's no way I'm turning my back on you, even if I have to die with you. And they all said the same. And just as Mark records earlier in this chapter, they all deserted him and fled. Peter and apparently John 
uh, follow. John knows has some connections, and so he gets them in a little bit closer. And and there's Peter warming himself by the fire. And three times he has the opportunity to stand with Jesus, and three times he denies him. And before we're too hard on Peter, let's remember, let's remember, we ourselves have through our actions and sometimes even through our words denied our relationship with the Lord and not been there to speak up for him for the same reasons that Peter didn't hear because it would cost us something. We live in a world that seems to be increasingly moving farther and farther away from any kind of appreciation and uh, and uh, respect for those who name the name of Christ. And we hope and pray that it won't come to that in this in this country. But at the same time, we also know that there are already people all around us who have to pay a price socially, economically, in their job, in their business with family members. They have to pay a price because of their relationship with Christ. Jesus said that that would happen. And here we see Peter having that option and turning away from Jesus instead of turning towards him. That great passage in Luke's recording of this event, in Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62, uh, as uh, Jesus is there and Peter denies him, Jesus, it says, turned and looked at Peter. Uh, he knew it was going to happen, but it still broke his heart. And for Peter, having been so bold and so proud and so arrogant, so self-confident to come face to face with Jesus. Can you imagine that look across the way? Jesus being questioned uh, under guard, who knows what's happening to him at the exact time, and Peter warming himself by the fire, denying once, denying twice, calling down oaths, swearing, once again denying that he has anything to do with Jesus. And then it says in Luke 22, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. I'm sure that Peter never forgot that moment. I'm sure that Peter never forgot that look. And I think that's why when Jesus is talking with Peter after the resurrection in John 21, and he kind of puts his arm around him, I see him putting his arm around him anyway, and walking along, John straining to listen, walking a step or two behind him. And Jesus asking Peter, Simon, do you love me? Using that great agape term in John 21. And Peter saying, Lord, you know that I love you, but uses a different term. The term for brotherly love, the term that, um, that we get um, uh, the word Philadelphia from. Uh, brotherly love, uh, the combination there. And, um, and, and, uh, and then Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. And again, a second time, Simon, do you love me? Do you ha have that agape for me that I had for you? And Peter again, no, well, yes, Lord, I do love you, but with that same brotherly kind of love rather than the love that is called upon to give all. And then finally, the third time, as you know, if you've studied this passage, Jesus asks him, Simon, do you love me? But this time he uses Peter's term, the scaled down version, knowing that Peter is doing uh, as much as he can to deal with all of this. And then it says that Peter was distraught because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Not just because he had to ask him three times, but because of the term that he used, he uses that brotherly affection term. Peter, do you at least really do that? Jesus is asking and Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And each time Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep.
each time uh, as Luke records it. Luke has Jesus in his version telling uh, Peter, look, Peter, I've prayed for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you come back after you have fallen, I want you to strengthen your brothers. What a great statement that is out of Luke's gospel. And now we see Jesus beginning to fulfill that as he turns and looks straight at Peter, according to Luke 22. And as Peter goes out and weeps bitterly and leaves Jesus alone to be crucified. But then when the list of the disciples is given in Acts chapter 1, Peter is right there with them. And when the first one of them speaks up and says, look, we've got to replace Judas Iscariot. That's what the Bible tells us to do and quotes Old Testament scripture. And it's Simon Peter who is able to do that. And it's Simon Peter who has Luke recording uh, of the first gospel sermon, the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, that first time that repentance and remission of sins is preached in the name of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, it's just an incredible, incredible moment. But for Jesus, it's his loneliest hours. He is disowned by his closest followers and friends. He is disowned by the people as well. As we read on, they shout for his blood. Mark 15, beginning in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, the whole Jewish ruling council, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. You see, the Jews don't have the authority to crucify someone, and they didn't want just to put Jesus to death. They wanted him to die a horrendous, um, shameful, humiliating, painful death of crucifixion. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so. Jesus replied, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things? they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate <clears throat> was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Other gospel accounts make it clear that Barabbas was one of those accused, not just of insurrection, but of murder. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Because it is the Passover and I, Pilate saw a way out here. Because verse 10 says, Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. It was clear to Pilate. He, he knew politics. He knew how earthly power went. He had seen it before. And he was about to be a part of it. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. That great song, How Deep the Father's Love, has that uh, verse um, where uh, it takes us to this scene, this scene of the cross. And as we sing, we sing these words, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among uh, the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Uh, and that's the only reason why Jesus was crucified, because of my sin and because of yours. 
this is an incredible passage and John fleshes out much more so the discussion and the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. It's interesting that when Pilate finds out Jesus is, a, is from Nazareth and uh, King Herod is actually in Jerusalem for the Passover, that Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod and yet Jesus, as, as we receive, as we hear in the Gospels, doesn't even respond to Herod at all. Uh, he has zero respect for King Herod, even though he has some connections with the Jewish people. Still, Jesus had no respect for him, didn't interact with him at all. Herod, hoping that he could see some kind of miracle, uh, just as the great play Godspell has with Herod singing that song uh, about Jesus, which I think captures uh, him, you know, show me Jesus, you're no fool, walk across my swimming pool. Show me Jesus, you're divine, change my water into wine. It seems that was all that Herod cared about. But for Jesus, he wouldn't give in at all, wouldn't give him the time of day. And so Herod condemns him as well, uh, has his guards uh, do all kinds of horrible things to Jesus and then send him back to Pilate. And Pilate, once again, interacting with Jesus asking him, according to John chapters 18 and 19, are you the king of the Jews? Um, and Jesus interacting some with him and, and, um, and Jesus, you know, saying, uh, if I were, a, if, if my kingdom were of this world, my subjects would fight, but, but that's not the case here. And Pilate says, so you are a king then, thinking he's got him trapped. And Jesus saying, yes, I am a king, uh, but not the way you understand it. And I, my subjects, were I to call on them, Jesus could have said, they would have delivered me, but that is not the will of the Father. And so it's not my will at this moment either. I will let this go on. Jesus at any moment could have stopped it. And yet because he loved me so, as the song says, because he loved you so, uh, he did not. And he stayed uh, in that uh, horrible kangaroo court as we call it, where there was no form of justice at all that night. Uh, his Jewish people condemned him. The leaders condemned him. The uh, people cried out for his blood around the cross. And, um, and Pontius Pilate, finally, when the people say, look, this man claims to be a king. We have no king but Caesar. How about you, Pilate? And that's when Pilate goes to that place where he is to render judgment, sits down, and pronounces guilt and pronounces the sentence death by crucifixion. It's just an amazing, incredible story to read of Jesus' crucifixion, but also to read of his betrayal by one of his own, Judas Iscariot, his being deserted by all of his followers and, um, and finally convicted. Um, Jesus is disowned and forsaken by his own people, by his closest friends and followers, and he is convicted and sentenced to death, though he is innocent of every charge. In spite of everything that happens to Jesus, still he communicates love and acceptance and forgiveness to those who turn their backs on him. Uh, Jesus forgives Peter. John 21 assures us of that. And as we see in um, Acts chapter 1, we realize that Peter has a role to play still. And, um, and just as Jesus had called on Peter to do after he uh, repents of his great sin to help the others, uh, Peter indeed does that exact thing. And how hard it must have been for Peter to speak up that day in the midst of the other disciples before the gift of the Holy Spirit was given. 
to quote scripture to them in Acts 1 and to say, hey, look, according to the Bible, we need to select someone, someone who's been with us the whole time, someone who has seen the resurrected Lord uh, to be the replacement for Judas Iscariot. And uh, Matthias is chosen. Uh, they learned the important lesson that the Lord uses us, not because we are always faithful, but because he is faithful. And there's another man, another character in this story who's not named in this gospel. Um, in those weird kind of strange verses, Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, there was a young man that was there when Jesus was arrested and they tried to arrest him too, but he just flew himself out of his own clothes and ran away naked. Who was that young man? Well, I think that's a graphic description of the chaos of the moment, the panic of the moment, the fear of all of the disciples at the moment. And according to history, it could very well be that the person who did that is actually the writer of this gospel, uh, the young man, Mark himself. Uh, tradition holds that the Last Supper was at Mark's home. Uh, his mother's name was Mary, obviously not Jesus' mother, uh, not Mary Magdalene, but his mother Mary was uh, an aunt of Barnabas. And so Barnabas and Mark were cousins, according to Colossians 4, verse 10. And uh, that, that her home, their home, Mark's home, is where the disciples were on the day of Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit. We don't know that for sure. Ultimately, of course, they are quickly in the midst of the other Jews. And so I'm not sure that part is correct. But historically, Mark and his mother Mary and their home has a great part to play in those early days of the church. And when the people are gathered together praying for Peter after uh, James, the brother of John, is killed, the first apostle killed in Acts 12, and the disciples are gathered and praying because now Peter has been arrested and the same fate awaits him, they're praying at the home of Mark and his mother Mary in Acts 12, uh, verse 12. And it is this Mark who followed Paul and Mark's cousin Barnabas on their first mission journey, but then returned home before the work was done. And it was this Mark that Paul refuses to take on his second journey. And the, the rift becomes so strong between him and Barnabas, who really wants to take Mark, that they part ways. And Paul takes Silas and later Timothy uh, to be a part of his mission team. And, and Barnabas takes John Mark and goes a different direction, thus creating two mission teams out of one. Satan trying at every turn to destroy the church, and yet God using every event that happens uh, to further the cause of Christ Jesus, his son, and our Savior. It was this mark that Paul called for Timothy to bring to him while he was in prison. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, shortly before his own death, Paul writes to Timothy and he says to bring Mark with you when you come because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And it is this Mark who is referred to by the Apostle Peter the same way that Paul refers to Timothy. Peter saying in 1 Peter 5.13, my son, Mark. Uh, that is this man. That apparently is the writer of this gospel. And probably it is based very much on the account of Peter. We don't have a gospel of Peter just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's very likely that Luke, a traveling companion of Paul's, as you know, uh, shared a, the gospel that Paul might have written. And it's very likely that Mark, in this short action gospel, shares the message that Peter himself would have written, not leaving out at all the difficult 
moments, such as Mark fleeing naked when Jesus is arrested and Peter denying three times that he even knew Jesus. Jesus began his church with the very same people who cried out, crucify him. Pentecost occurs just 50 days, less than two months after Passover, and many of the Jews who were there in Jerusalem had traveled great distances, and when they traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, they stayed that extra time, and they uh, were there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given, and for the first time, the call to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, imagine uh, of course, not all of them would have been there and not all of them would have been around Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the cross shouting, crucify him, making fun of Jesus, observing the terrible tragedy of that um, of that horrible day. But some of them would have. Some of them surely would have. And yet there they are being convicted, as Acts 2 verse 36 says and verse 37 says that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom we had crucified. God could use Mark in spite of his fears and his weaknesses, in spite of the fact that he deserted Jesus, in spite of the fact that he left early on that first mission journey. God still could use Mark. He still could use Simon Peter and the other apostles. And he still can use you and me in the same way God can use us and does. Not because of your perfection, not because you're sinless. God will forgive you of the times you failed him as well. And God will use you to spread his love to others. And that's our witness. It's not just to say, I believe that Jesus is the son of God, although we're called upon to do that. But also because we are called upon to say, these are the times when I failed him. And yet he has stood with me the whole way. And he died on the cross knowing that I would fail him, and yet he loved me enough to stay there because of me, because of my sin. Just as Paul tells his story in 1 Timothy 1, and he calls himself the worst or chief of sinners, and he says, because God's unlimited love and patience needed to be shared, God decided to use me to share it so that people would know if God can forgive this angry, blasphemer, accuser, man who was responsible for the imprisonment and even the death of Christians. If he can use me, Paul said, then he can use you. And if he can forgive me, he can forgive you. And I hope, my dear friend, that you know both of those things, both of those great truths that come as we begin to read this story that we'll continue on with next week and, um, and see our Lord Jesus Christ crucified, but ultimately raised from the dead. Um, because God loves you, he did this, and he has forgiven you of your sins, but he has also given you a mission. He has also called on you to share the story, to share the story by sharing your story, telling your story the way Paul did, the way Mark, I'm sure, did, the way Simon Peter did. He calls on us to do the same thing. In the words of Acts chapter 1, being witnesses, being witnesses of what Jesus has done to me wherever we can find someone that will be willing to hear. May God bless us all to be like those who, even though they failed him miserably, came back to him, received that gracious, merciful forgiveness through the blood of Christ, and then went on from there to tell the story.
God bless you all.